Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. This year's series is titled Growing Our Capacity to Lead. Through this podcast, we will work to make leadership tangible. We will try to take what some might see as subjective and make it objective. We'll let you hear conversations between master leaders and emerging leaders in ways that promote effective practices leading to desirable outcomes. Our goal is simple. After each podcast, we hope you have one idea, one practice, or one new leadership tool that you can implement immediately. Welcome to Living Leadership. I'm really excited to talk to you about the events that we're going to go through, the conversation we're going to have, the topics we're going to get to today, because they all center around leadership and the military. Uh, as many of you know, November is a really important month in terms of Veterans Day. I dare say it should be considered maybe Military History Month because we've got Veterans Day and Thanksgiving. And what a, uh, what a better month to really think about the influence of our military, the protection of our military. And so today we're going to try to get into leadership as it comes from the military, for the military, and with a, a filter of military. As we always do, we've got a, a guest we're going to talk to. We're going to bring on some students at one point, and we're going to have a nice conversation about that. But to get us started, I want to talk really quickly about a bomber back in World War II that headed out to uh, go on a bombing run over Germany. This bomber was flanked by fighters, and it was in the middle of the night trying to dump its payload to try to blow up some munitions factories in Germany. And uh, as you might know about bombers, they're pretty clunky, they're pretty slow, so those, those fighters on the, on the wings really had to try to take care of it. Well, it actually did drop the load, and then they were able to turn around, but they didn't get around fast enough. There were some German fighters that scrambled, got off, off the ground, and, and a dogfight ensued. This one British bomber did its best to get away from the fray because it's just not as agile, just not as fast. And sure enough, one of those German fighters made it through the smoke, and suddenly it had this bomber in its sights. As the bomber watched the fighter get closer and closer and closer, they started to finally see the tracer rounds coming up. And they watched as those tracer rounds from that German fighter came up and then boom, 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 five bullets actually went right into the gas tank underneath the wing of this bomber. The men in the bomber were just waiting for the plane to explode. The German fighter saw that he'd hit them, peeled off to go in some other direction for some other fight. And they were just waiting, but there was no explosion. They got over the English Channel, no explosion. They saw land, no explosion. They finally got down on the ground. I'm sure that they got out of that plane and, and put their lips to the pavement. And they went around and they grabbed that gas tank. They took it back to the machinist shop and they opened it up and they found inside were five smashed bullets. Now bullets were built a little differently now then than they are now. But as they opened up those bullets, they found something very interesting. In four of the five bullets, there was nothing. There was no explosive, no incendiary element. In the fifth bullet, there was simply a piece of paper. It was a note. They unwound this note and they found that it said, we are Polish prisoners of war. We are being forced to fill munitions. When the Germans don't look, we don't fill. I know it's not much, it's the best we can do. 
tell our families we're alive. You ask those bombers if it was much. Those five bullets, who knows how many were in a row, five, six, seven in a row of, of nothing that was going to actually detonate. It was much. It saved their lives. I think sometimes when we talk about leadership, it's not just the big stuff we want to focus on. It's the little stuff. It's the bullets that we all have at our disposal. Today, my guest is Dan Dent. Dan Dent is a man of faith. He's a father of three amazing daughters, two of whom are Zags. He's a grandfather. He's a husband of 33 years to his high school sweetheart, who is a first grade teacher and a, and a career army officer who retired as Brigadier General after 31 years of service. Dan is a distinguished military graduate from Pacific Lutheran University. He earned a master's degree in strategic studies from the US Army War College. Dan held leadership and command assignments at all levels in the Army and served in multiple combat zone deployments. He commanded a joint aviation task force in 2011 that led Army operations in Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. His military decorations include the Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Army Aviation Air Medal, and the Bronze Star during combat tours. His final assignment was serving as the Commanding General of the Washington Army National Guard. Dan Dent, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Dean. I'm honored to be a part of this event with you. I believe in the mission of Gonzaga School of Leadership Studies, and I'm proud to participate with all of you today. I, I appreciate the intro, but, you know, in, the, in keeping with the theme of, of the message today, you know, the most important thing you said there for me is about my frame of reference with my family and kind of how I was raised and where I come from as, you know, as a human, as a you know, as this bigger collective of soldiers and the thing I did in the military, but it really all started there with, with yeah. my family. Yeah. I, I guess those are also part of our, uh, our, our tools, right? Our bullets. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us in your own words, I, I obviously gave your, uh, your, your Vita there, not, not just of who you are and what your positions of leadership have been, but can you kind of share how you define leadership for yourself? A absolutely. Thank you. I define leadership as establishing a current within an organization that values the unique perspectives and capabilities and experiences of the people you work with to move the team in a direction that accomplishes the objectives that the organization wants to serve. And for me, you know, this has to be a worthy endeavor. It's got to be an organizational objective that has an honorable aim. And that was my case in the Army. But you know, when I, when I think about defining leadership, it's that. It's this collective movement towards something that we want to achieve that's worthy. I have a, an offshoot question of that for you, Dan. In, in my opening podcast, I, I said to the audience, my favorite word when it comes to leadership is the word intentional. I really think it's important to do things with purpose. I'm curious, what would you say your favorite word is when it comes to the concept of leadership? Trust. Didn't take me very long to answer that. That's, that's uh, born from over three decades of trying to connect with soldiers and, you know, starting with the, the principle, you know, of integrity, you know, this, you know, this, there's an, a foundation of integrity that has to happen, but from that you build trust. 
trust with your soldiers, trust with your organizations. And without that as a leader, it's very hard, very hard to do anything, especially with a, you know, with a thinking, you know, learning organization, you know, like, like the military. But if soldiers can't trust you, you're going to have a very hard time influencing them or motivating them to move in a direction that you want them to move. So this, this concept of integrity that builds trust, and trust which builds loyalty in the organization, which ultimately builds pride, trust to me is the cornerstone of any effective leader. And without it, I, I'm not sure where you'd go. I, uh, I want to take just a quick moment and brag on you just a bit. So for the listening audience, Dan is one of our advisors at the School of Leadership Studies and uh, a welcome advisor at that. But he's a new advisor, uh, pretty new to us. And he's got some, some daughters in the area, which is why he's moved back to Spokane. But I just want to say, after only a, a couple of months of work, Dan came by and got the entire staff of the School of Leadership Studies the other day and said, hey, I want to I want to offer you the ability to go have a breakfast together. And I think he gave them a gift card and they were able to go out and have a, a nice meal together. What you're about to hear is from somebody who really is practicing what he preaches, and it really is sort of intuitive to who, who he is. Uh, I wanted to say thank you, Dan, on, on behalf of the staff for that uh, lovely gesture. And I know that that's something that ties over from the kind of work you did with the military. Is that fair? Well, it certainly is. And it's, you know, it's it's a caring thing for me. I, I, I think I told Sherry on that day, every every great relationship has this give and take. And I just felt like I was taking way too much. And uh, I just wanted to just, you know, just a tiny little demonstration to let them know that I just thank them for what they're doing for me as a, as a person, as a human, as, you know, someone here in the community, um, you know, I, I had to, there was enough time that it went by. I needed to, I needed to just simply say thanks. Well, I think they had an awesome meal. So thank you. Uh, I also wanted to give you just a very, very quick moment to say something perhaps here that, you said to the staff that day, it was very important. I believe it was the day before Veterans Day, or maybe it was the day after Veterans Day, one of the two. Um, and you made a, a, a crucial observation about Veterans Day not necessarily being about picnics and barbecues for many families in our country. I wonder if you might share just a little bit about that perspective with our audience today. Absolutely. And, you know, again, this is from a frame of reference of, of many years of you know, witnessing being relational with with families that have lost service members. And, you know, while we, we look, absolutely honor these great traditions we have as Americans, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, these days can be excruciatingly painful for families that have lost a loved one, you know, a, a service member who's given the ultimate sacrifice for our nation, you know, honoring the sacrifice that so many gave before them. And it's on these days, like Veterans Day and, and Memorial Day and others. But I think it's really important to just pause, you know, re regardless of, you know, your, your moral belief, just to pause and realize what sacrifice these service members have made and the ongoing sacrifice that their loved ones and family members continue to make. And you, you can just imagine a family of a, of a service member that was, you know, that was lost, how they view flags waving on Veterans Day or how they, they view 
um, a parade on Memorial Day. And so I, th I just think it's it's important for us to to just stay connected with that and not get uh, not get too far removed from the real reason why we have these days in the first place. Yeah, that reminder is. I think it's important that we get reminded uh, often because the sacrifices are real. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it. I think the audience is starting to get a sense of who you are as a human being. They're going to get a much better sense uh, of who you are as a human slash leader. Our, our school, the School of Leadership Studies, speaks to the notion of adaption, adaptation, what adaptive leadership is and should be. Uh, before we talk about how you adapted, which to me is an extremely inspiring story, by the way, and I, I think the audience is going to love to hear it, I'd love to know what you think about the notion that the best leaders do adapt to their context, their time, their needed outcomes, you know, whatever that might look like. I would think that the military would promote more of a standardized playbook for a lot of things. So I'd really love to hear from you. How does adaptive leadership resonate with you personally? Well, great question. And I, I appreciate it. Uh, I love talking about this. So uh, if you will suffer me, just stick with me for a, a few minutes here. You know, effective leaders must understand their environment. That can be incredibly challenging. That could be its own podcast <laughs> on its own. But in the military, we relate this to, we relate it to the tactical, the operational, the strategic environment. The conditions in the environment are constantly changing all around us, whether we want them to or not. Sometimes these levels of environments are even competing against themselves. So as leaders, we have to be self-aware enough to understand the role we play in setting these organizational behaviors within these environments. So ultimately we can lead the team towards you know, the objectives that we're pursuing. And this takes real assessment. It takes having the desire and energy to pursue change. And more often than not, you know, big foot stomp here. It takes sincere humility. I mean, to look within your leadership and within the behaviors of the organization to set the team up to be proactive towards adaptation. As for my opinion on the military's approach, you know, there are pros and cons. The military's rich tradition in building leaders is powerful and something, you know, that I am very proud of. You know, grounded in the Army values from my, you know, past service, the principles of character, competence, and commitment are military leaders' touchstones. However, you know, traditional approaches, and one could argue that the military places a, a premium on tradition, you know, can make it hard to break away from, you know, the standard trained and ingrained way that military organizations plan, deliver, and assess outcomes. The structure of the staff, even, and the command relationships are fairly regimented. It follows a relatively rigid military decision-making or design process that can be slower to adapt than you want it to, especially if the environment is changing faster than you expected. You know, the military places a premium on the decisiveness of a commander. And nearly every hierarchy ends up at the top of the structure with the commander. So the comment I made earlier about the criticality of a leader being self-aware and humble in the face of change just can't be understated. Now, speaking to an adaptation, Adapting as a leader is fundamental to leading a complex learning, thinking organization within an environment that gets a big vote. And an effective leader not only has to understand this about themselves, but promote a climate 
from within which other leaders can do this on their own. It's super important. One of the principles that our team really fostered when I was in command of the Washington Army National Guard is the concept of discipline initiative with an intent. Building upon mutual trust and shared understanding was my job and the job of the executive team to clearly express intent with as much clarity and visualization as possible so that subordinate leaders can make decisions on their own and move the collective organization to achieve our goals. A leader has to adapt or they will become less effective or worse, simply left behind and the organization suffers. So in response to your, your comment about the military's playbook, it gives us all sorts of tools to deal with complex decision-making. But the adaptation and the willingness to be self-aware and humble in the midst of this is something that the best effective leaders that I served and certainly learned from figured out. And so to that end, Dan, you have told me this story that I think is beyond compelling. Um, with what you just said around understanding your context and having your tools in place, but being humble enough to make a change, to make a, a pivot, if you will. Can you take the audience back to that midpoint of your command at the Army National Guard? You had a conversation with your superiors, really pitching a different kind of experience for your soldiers. Uh, and this was going to be quite impactful, not just on their lives, but even how you led. Can you tell us about what were the driving forces at that time? And can you give us a sense of what that conversation uh, looked like? Sure, absolutely. I can definitely describe the environment. I, I appreciate this as well, because, you know, self-reflection after I, you know, I left service has been a big deal for me lately. So I always appreciate the opportunity for growth here. Um, I took command of the Washington Army National Guard in November of 2019. And as like any new excited leader, I set about establishing a vision for the organization, a multi-year strategic plan with all the right bumper stickers to achieve some of the objectives that we needed to secure. And in hindsight, probably most importantly, what we did as a team was we established a set of behaviors or principles that the organization would follow to help us secure those objectives. We called them the big six. You know, it seems like every army commander needs uh, a big something, whether it's big four, big five, mine was the big six. Um, and notably, much of these things were informed by the operational and strategic environment that we understood. Training and preparing units for overseas contingency operations for our nation and meeting you know, the needs of relatively straightforward domestic operations for our state. Things that we had done for a couple of decades, you know, very well, I might add, in support of these dual missions. But I recall a massive leadership summit in the first week of January of 2020 where I rolled this whole shiny new plan out for all the leaders at every echelon. I was excited about all of our new stuff, you know, team building and bonding through this event. And I felt like we all left there with this real enthusiasm for what was ahead. Two weeks later, on a Saturday, I remember getting a call from my counterpart in command of the Air National Guard that our boss, the adjutant general, was in the policy room of our state's emergency management division. And he was in discussion with the governor about a patient in a hospital in Everett that was diagnosed with something called a coronavirus. There was obviously a lot of energy and anxiety about this, especially as it started being actively followed in the national news media. Of course, in those early days, we did not have much a clue on, on where this was going. You know, and it's like most non-adapted, less self-aware leaders, which I was, you know, obviously at the time, 
I discounted its possible effect on all of the cool ideas that I had just set in motion for the Army of our state. Just about a month later, I was bumping elbows with the Vice President of the United States in one of our buildings near our headquarters on Camber as he visited Washington, which, as you know, at the time was considered the U.S. epicenter of what would become the greatest pandemic of our generation. Now, one would think this would have been enough for me to recognize that the time for adaptation was now, but it wasn't. You know, my thought was, you know, how dare something like this, right after we just rolled out the magic plan, you know, how dare something like this happen? Those very human things in me, like ego and frustration and conflict avoidance, wanted this thing that had just changed our environment to go away and just let me lead in the way that I wanted to lead, which was always very connected and relational, people having to be together, units having to stay to connect, you know, connected together and collect the train. And even as we moved deeper into 2020 past the civil unrest and the challenges that summer, the idea of remote soldiering and leadership and doing things in a different way than had been informed by my frame of reference was just, there were just things that I simply did not want to recognize. But as they say, the environment was changing rapidly all around us. And our team realized that if we did not adapt, if I did not adapt, it was going to threaten the future strength of our historic organization. So the conversations that I had with, with my leadership, who's a, a wonderful, wonderful, wise, benevolent boss, felt the exact same way, that we had to do something different here or there were consequences that we, we, we may not simply be willing to handle. And that's what we did. I'll, I'll give the audience a little irony here that you all know on the podcast. Um, I'm talking with COVID right now. So how times have changed, right? We know more about it, but oh my gosh, I remember, we all remember. It was awful. Uh, schools shutting down, the military shutting down, bases, quarantining, not quarantining. What do we do with flights? Oh my gosh. And so you took charge. <laughs> wow. Right at, right at the start of all of that. So I, I hope the audience feels the conflict that I, I felt when you told me this story. Because, you know, a, a good story centers around disequilibrium, and you've just created a whole heap and heck of it. So let me ask you, uh, before we bring in our students, how did, you, how did you handle it? What did you do? What leadership choices did you make? You obviously did adapt. How? Well, the, the pressures across our formations were at an all-time high. What we were asking units to do from continuing to deploy to overseas contingencies, and we deployed more than during any time in the past decade, to serving across the state in food banks, running test sites, protecting our state and nation's capital, just an array of tasks with a tempo that I had never seen. At one point, we ordered the entire Washington Army National Guard, 6,000 soldiers to duty, something that had never happened in the history of our state. You know, during this time, we began to really assess the serious consequences of retaining our soldiers, all of which are volunteers. You know, the greatest military in the world, we're all volunteers. Convincing them to reenlist amidst all of this chaos and stick with us because we needed them then more than ever. And I think the biggest and most powerful insight that we gained during this time, certainly for me personally, was it was not really the pressure on units or organizations of all these missions 
you know, new mandates or this hypercharged environment. It was the pressure on our soldiers, the humans that we serve alongside, their families, their employers, their friends, their community members. You know, as a leader at the top of a very large structure, you know, thousands of soldiers, hundreds of units spread across nearly 40 facilities across the state, I was allowing myself to get lulled into this belief that it was just units and structures feeling this stress. But in reality, it was each individual soldier. And they all had individual experiences and challenges. And if we were going to win this over-the-horizon fight for the strength of our guard and retention of our soldiers, we had to win what I called the, the value proposition. And if you'd like, I can explain my thoughts on the value proposition, but that's what we came up with. You're not gonna you're not gonna hear about a value proposition in you know military doctrinal leadership training. At least I at least I never did. But we realized that if we were gonna if we were gonna retain the strength of our force, we had to win this value proposition. At Horizon Credit Union, community is who we serve, and helping you grow is our goal. Your path is our purpose, and together we can make a positive impact. Whether you're ready for a checking account, a home loan, or a team that cares about your dreams, doing business here does good in the community. Discover the difference and open your account today or find a branch near you at hzcu.org. Horizon Credit Union is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. I think this is probably a great time to bring our students in. And one of the reasons that this is such a, uh, I hope, a powerful conversation just so our audience can understand this, is that our students also have military in their DNA. So let's, let's bring them in and we can start to talk about that value proposition because these are the soldiers that you were referring to um, that really needed that, that help, that, that someone to understand that they were going through trying times as well. And so uh, we, we are really excited to have two of our students let me start with Katie Britt. Katie, if you could uh, come off mute and just let us know a little bit about yourself. What are you studying uh, here at the School of Leadership Studies? Tell us about yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie. I'm currently serving in the Air Force, leading 250 mechanics who take care of our aircraft and our pilots. Been all over the world and seen teams through some tough circumstances, but I've loved every unit that I've been with. I'm also halfway through my Kamel graduate program at Gonzaga and I've had a ton of great reflection. And I love learning about leadership because I can always be better. Uh, one day I will lead thousands of airmen and each one of our volunteers deserves leaders who value them and their families and can balance that with our demanding missions and lead them through crises or contingencies. So I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure, Katie. Uh, we, we are so excited to have the conversation uh, here with uh, with you and, and also our other student, Nick Brock. Nick, if you could uh, introduce yourself to our audience, we, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Borden, and thank you, General Dent, for uh, putting all this together. Um, but yeah, my name is Nick Brock. I'm currently a 
a doctoral student at Gonzaga. Um, finishing my fourth year in the program, hopefully going to wrap that up in the next hmm, 18 months, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, but yes, also a uh, career military. Um, I'm a retired chief master sergeant, United States Air Force, 25 years. Um, over that time, I mean, multiple deployments, um, multiple units, assignments, uh, senior enlisted leader for, um, you know, Hickam Air Force Base out in Hawaii. I was a did staff tour out in D.C., which is where I retired out of um, 14 months ago. Thanks, Nick. So let me let me try to tie uh, our, our three guests together here just for a moment. So, Katie, Nick, you both got to hear Dan talk about the experience that he had and brought into his command. And I'd just like to hear from you. You both have military experience. You also now have, have been studying elements of leadership for a time. I'm curious, how did that resonate with you uh, in terms of both your, your past experience, but also what you know about efficacy when it comes to being a leader? Uh, Katie, let's start with you. I am very impressed. I know General Dent is going to speak a little bit more about winning the value proposition and explain what that means. Um, but I think that's so challenging to implement just in a standard environment. But on top of that, have to do it during one of the most challenging times we've had as supervisors in the military. So um, I'm I'm impressed right now. <laughs> how about you, Nick? How, how did that resonate with both your, your background, but also your studies? Well, it, it's interesting you say that background, my military background in my studies, because right now I'm at this weird stage where everything that I look at and everything that I hear, I analyze. I analyze it from a student perspective and I analyze it, I bump it against like leadership lessons um, that we've learned over time. And so uh, so I, when I listened to to um, General Dent, like I've I just I, I'm looking at it kind of through both of those lenses, right? Like a, like a, this is a commander that I would follow, you know, to the brink. And um, what does this mean to my academics? And you mentioned trust, right? Like like first and foremost, um, you know, getting if you're a leader, especially in the military where we change leaders, it seems like we change socks, you know, I mean, it, you're getting to a, a unit and next thing you know, there's a change of command and there's a new philosophy with a new individual. That's, that's going to try to continue the successes of the unit that got to that point and then carried that former leader commander onto their next great thing. But then someone's got to step into their shadow and try to not only maintain that cohesion, but, get the buy-in of the soldiers, airmen, sailors, what have you, um, to continue marching forward. Yeah, and and, it's, and it's one of the things that I've always noticed in leaders and have picked in myself just from different assignments I've had um, is the sense of not only the trust, but just being genuine, sincere, like being yourself. If you're not yourself, if you're not, if you're not sincere, it seems like they, the, the, Soldiers, sailors, airmen, they pick up on it like super quick. And then it's almost irreparable at that point to try to come back and then be genuine. Um, and it's so much work to, to be disingenuine, right? Like it's hard to not be yourself. And 
let me let me stop you there and, and ask uh, General Dent. Dan, you you mentioned in your in your conversation, a good leader understands themselves. Uh, Nick just said that it's pretty hard to fake sincerity, right? I mean, I know that's the old joke, right? If you can fake sincerity, you can fake anything. Um, but most people can't do it. So to that point, how did you bring yourself into the the leadership pivoting that you did, the changes you made, the transformation that you you tried to apply? How much of that was you knowing you, and how much uh, how much learning did you have to do in in that capacity? Well, thanks for the question. I mean, it came from it really came from two places. I had the blessing of being raised by a few leaders, um, two really in my two leaders moving into the, the final job that I had that understood understood the value of people and what people and their their different experiences bring to an organization. And you know, they work with me on that that humanistic concept. You know, as a, as a senior military officer, that's not something we you, know, you would think we talk a whole lot about. But these two individuals did that for me as they kind of raised me up in, into that more senior role. That was that informed it. But really, the main thing that informed it was myself and my family and what we were struggling with. You know, I, I found myself, you know, during during this time, you know, thinking about, you know, what does this environment mean for my daughters, what does it mean for you know, my spouse? And you know, as, as she's an educator, as you said, you know, what does it mean for for? And if I am struggling with this, and I am trying to deal with this, you know, in a relatively blessed position in the, in the grand scheme of you know military you know members that are having to deal with this, if I am struggling with this, what is happening down the line at echelon in my formation? And it took it took real reflection, and then connection with. The folks on the team to talk about this, and and how, and how are we going to take this operationalized plan that you know we're really good at in the military of of moving companies and battalions and brigades? How are we going to move from that and in ordering these you know entities into action? How are we going to move from that to really understanding what this means and the consequences it means? the humans that are receiving that order. We we coined a phrase. Well, and let me back up for one second. I talked to you before about the big six, the principles and the behaviors that help drive this whole thing. The first was being a soldier first. That was connecting to the tradition of soldiering and honoring the sacrifices of, that came before us, you know, values and standards and toughness. But the second principle was soldier-centric. And what that, what that was was a promise to our formation that Anytime we had to make a decision that had some sort of consequential effect, we were going to consider what that meant to you, your family, and your employer. And we started this, this phrase that went around, you know, from the highest level of our army all the way down to the, you know, to the lowest levels of command, that these decisions we're going to make as if we're making around your kitchen table. And it started to change behavior and the way we thought about what we were doing um, with our formations and with our soldiers. Because, look, you know, living in the military and serving in the military, it's not all a candy land thing. You know, this isn't, you know, unicorns and rainbows all the time. We ask these soldiers and units to do extraordinarily difficult things. You know, right in the middle of this pandemic, like I said before, we deployed 1,500 soldiers to contingency operations. 
So it's, it's not as if we're going to make, you know, this is all going to become easier. But what we owed them was this dialogue that valued their perspective so that they at least at least felt that we trusted the process of understanding the consequence. So if we were going to order them at a moment's notice to pick up and move three hours away, join a unit and work at a test site, leave their family, leave their employer, leave their community, we owed it to them to explain the consequence and the why about why it was so important that they executed that mission. And once we started living that behavior, it worked its way down. And it worked its way down to those, those really, you know, as, as Katie and Nick will understand, those lowest level of organizational leadership, you know, down at that platoon and squad level where that small group said, all right, we got to do this tough thing, but we trust the process. We trust why we have to do it, why the sacrifice has to be made. And it all started from, from again, training, but really this, this self-reflection on, on this challenge that I was feeling myself. So I, I assume we both danced around and even through the value prop that you you mentioned before. Obviously, it piqued the interest of, of Katie and Nick as they were talking about it too. Let's go ahead and, and hear from you, your words. What is that value prop? And then I'm going to go back to Nick and Katie and ask them uh, how they might apply that to some of the learning that they brought in from their leadership courses. So to set the stage for the value proposition, kind of where we where we started it was in in the army, and I'm, I'm sure it's similar for Katie and Nick in, in the Air Force. We have to retain soldiers, so they have a they join us, they sign up on a contract, and they serve for a period of time, and then when that contract expires, they can they can leave. You know, again, all volunteer military, and they get a vote <laughs> on leaving. You know, my one of my favorite books and fav, favorite quotes that you know every everybody on our on our leadership team you know knew verbatim was from Anton Myers, you know, seminal book on leadership. Once an eagle, there's a quote at the end of that book that says, "You will have no choice of what you are born into, and you will likely have very little choice on how you end. The rest is up to you to be a good man or woman." And I just believe that humans you know, live their life this way, that they want to succeed. They want to have success. They want to be a part of something that matters. So the value proposition comes from, if we want a human being, so forget the term soldier, airman, marine, just a human being that was raised with a unique experience from a unique family with a unique set of values, whether it's you know, faith-based values or other values, but this unique human being, they're raised and they, they, they come to a place in their life where they make a decision about how to spend their time and their resources. If they're going to spend that time with our organization, just happen to be the Army National Guard, if they're going to spend their time with us, we have to create an environment for them where that time is valued equal or greater than the time they could be spending doing something else because they're all volunteers. They're all making a choice to be with us and they could just as easily make the choice to do something else. So we have to create this environment where we win that value equation. Now in the military, we have an edge up because we have a great mission. You know, we live our life committed to an oath. You know, we have this 
honorable tradition that we can resonate with. So that helps us. But at the organizational level, if units are not valuing the perspective and the experiences and the challenges and the hopes and the struggles of their individual members and not creating an environment where they feel like, you know, they're serving in accordance with what we call the army values, you know, respect and integrity and honor. If those things aren't happening, the indicator that we're going to see is that they're going to leave us. And what we saw at the very, very beginning of this complicated, chaotic time was this fear that the retention problem was going to happen. If we did not move away from that regimented approach of ordering this and ordering that and, and just moving into this environment, if we did not move away from that to understanding what was really happening at the soldier and family and employer and community level, we're going to lose the value proposition. So we, we started this, this really this strategy that went at every level of command to try to understand where your soldiers and service members were coming from, you know, what their unique challenges were. You know, not every soldier could pick up on a moment's notice and be gone for 45 days without dire consequence, whereas we had many soldiers that could. So, you know, we moved from things like rote ordering units into action to pursuing more of a volunteer approach where we could. And we tried to balance things that we had really never done before. And we we wrapped it all up in the idea of valuing the soldier. And, you know, not to give away the, you know, the, the credits at the end of this, this uh, speech, but what we found when we broke out of the pandemic was that we had just achieved the greatest retention rate we had in 15 years. Because we, we learned you know, a lot of this was coaching from a great boss of mine. We learned that winning this value proposition is going to take us from the tactical and the operational to that strategic horizon we, which, which we needed because it created a set of behaviors that valued the humans that we serve with. So I, I hope that our audience is understanding why I felt this was so compelling when you shared it with me that we just had to share this with others. I think that this is something that we can all learn from in, in our own environments uh, and, and take it into the, the worlds where we live. This is not just a, a military uh, experience. This, this would be true anywhere. Nick, Katie, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to General Dent talk, I'm, I'm hearing values-based leadership. You know, that notion that you instill common sets of values in all of your, whether it's employees or soldiers or whoever that might be, which improves their cohesion, their willingness to work together. You will often hear about things like balance or uh, self-reflection in those values. But in this case, as you hear about uh, these different leadership principles bringing in, I'd love to know what you're hearing uh, based on the things you're learning and you're studying uh, and how this, again, really resonates with you. Let me start with you, Nick. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on what you just heard? Uh, um uh, initially, uh, I was picking up some some hints of Kira personalis in there, right? Like, uh, like caring for not just the mission. I mean, it, it, as leaders, we have an objective at the end of the day, and that's mission. Not not necessarily mission success, but like mission working toward a mission accomplishment. Um, but we can't do that without gears in the machine. We can't do that without soldiers, sailors, airmen that are willing to um, step up, 
you know, grab their bag and get out the door. Um, so, and yes, general dent is spot on, uh, at least as far as my time in the Air Force, retention. Recruiting is a little um, tough. Retention is the harder, uh, is, is, is more tough because of the the civilian opportunities out there and and people either wanting to to you know they're tired of moving around they're tired of constantly changing the as I mentioned before constant leadership changes every seems like every time we wake up we have to learn somebody new um, and they have a different direction they want to move in and we just got used to the last person so you know eh. um, but uh, but I think one of the one of the things I noticed as well. Um, and this kind of touches on the value proposition is ensuring that our people uh, know that they are not just a number and they're not just filling a, a space on a on a manning document. They're not just um, they're not just award fodder for the leadership when they're putting in their decoration package for their next PCS, right? So um, that they actually matter. Very good. Very, very good. Nick uh, brought up, you know, people as well. Let's stay on that theme here for a second, Katie. I, I assume that in your studies, you're also seeing the value of culture, that leadership that just focuses on productivity, but not culture is not sustainable. So I'd love to hear your perspectives as you hear what to me was an uncommon uh, explanation of culture driven leadership in the military. It just wasn't the first thing that ever would have come to my mind until I, I had the lovely conversation I originally had with the general. Um, I'd love to hear from you, Katie. How is this tying in with some of your own studies? Absolutely, sir. So I am so focused on humans and care so much, but I think it's really tough to implement this beautiful vision that General Dent had in reality, because how can you create this environment when they walk in the door, are they happy to be there? Is it enjoyable to walk in these very militaristic and minimalist halls because our resources are spent elsewhere? It's tough because they're pushing toolboxes through a foot of snow up in Alaska where it's negative 40 degrees or they're downrange and they're standing on hot metal because it's 135 degrees downrange. It's, it's so tough because they they spend like 12 hours a day every single week like 12 hour days um, throughout the week and how do you get your people to see that what they do matters because you as the leader at the top of this unit can push the why so much and you can teach the mid-level supervisors you know how to push that value down to their airmen but it's so hard in reality. So I would ask the question back to General Dent. How do you connect with your military members who are just de de dejected down in the trenches because service is hard and it's tough and it's a sacrifice. So how do you push that that message down through the unit that you have served with? Well, thanks, Katie. That's a great, uh, it's a great question about communication. And I would like to address that. But I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm sure that you and Nick will understand what I'm about to say. Some of the greatest moments that we have in service are during the hardest and most extraordinary times. 
now you know those those times can't live live forever um but the reason i reflect back on thinking about some of the just the toughest times physically and mentally tough times that i i during my service were also some of my most rewarding times with the unit and with the team was because of that that small group that believed in each other and believed that we were doing something bigger than ourselves because we were in, a, in an environment where you know, we believed our value there was greater than anything else we could be doing with our lives at the time. So it's easy to say that, you know, that's that's the thing that leaders have to resonate with during those tough times. But it certainly it certainly was for me. And treating, you know, treating these people that are part of the service, um, you know, from the perspective that, you know, they are making a choice to be with us. You know, that's the starting that's the starting principle. That's the starting principle, whether you are in the middle of a, you know, sandstorm in southern Iraq or whether you are working on a mission on Fairchild. I mean, it has to be the, the starting principle. Now, about the communication thing, that's a very insightful question that you asked, Katie, because I figured today I'd be asked with one of my, you know, what is, what is your toughest organizational challenge to implement all this stuff? And, and you basically ask, it's communication. It's communication, communication. Because here's the problem with communication, especially as a leader, and it only gets worse the bigger, you know, the bigger thing you lead. So you have, as a leader, you have an intended message, you have an intended audience with an intended purpose and an intended result. All right, you have that. In my case, it was the big six, it was our, our strategy to deal with this, it was the value proposition thing. But it always struggles at the bottom or in sideways, the farther you get away from the microphone, it always struggles with the, you know, achieving all those things I just said, intended audience, intended result, intended purpose. So we learned really fast that we had to assess whether this communication was getting to the level that we wanted to get. And our commitment was individual humans, individual soldiers. So I wanted an assessment that this was getting all the way to the soldier. Again, not a very military thing in terms of the way that we were brought up to bust through all those levels of command. But we realized that if we were if we we're going to try to get these behaviors right, this communication had to go through all these barriers, and we had to assess whether it was actually getting to the source. And so we did that with a bunch of interesting tools and surveys and you know, different sessions, more often than not, it was individual sessions of leadership moving around the state, talking to individual groups of soldiers. Again, not something terribly comfortable with most military chains of, chains of command. But we realized, Katie, that if we were going to have any hope of what was coming out of the, the sacred halls of building one on Camp Murray, if that thing, if that message was going to make its way all the way to Walla Walla, we had to assess it on its effect on those soldiers there. And without that assessment, you're exactly right. We probably would have been lost for months or, or longer on understanding whether the communication ever got to where it was supposed to go. As I think we all know, communication in any organization really is a struggle. I, I love the notion of what you just said there, Dan, that the bigger the organization, the more diluted your message gets level after level. That's such an important reminder for every leader at every level. Um, we are we are coming around the backside here, and I, I just want to make sure uh, that I give Nick and Katie any last chances that they they may 
need to ask a question, um, if they have any, about what you have talked about, what you've covered. Uh, let me start with you, Nick. Do you have any last questions that you want to ask the general? Yes, sir. So I think military leaders, but I'm sure any leader in the whole world can get subordinates who might get very stuck in their ways um, and maybe be a little bit stubborn, especially when you're trying to bring on this new vision, especially that's so people focused. So do you have any tips, processes, case studies that you could share about maybe a stubborn individual that you tried to bring on board to your vision? Thanks, Katie. Again, another <laughs> another great question. I'm going to answer it in two different ways because I think it kind of relates to each other. You know, I, I use the word when, when the dean asked me to define leadership. I use the word current for a, a very in, you know, intentional reason. You know, we've all heard about leadership, you know, about the bus. You know, everybody's got their place on the bus. You got to get them on the bus, get them in the right seat. If they don't have a seat, you get them off the bus. I largely don't believe any of that. I believe in the current concept. Think of a river. So my job as a leader is to create this current that's flowing in a direction that I've either been told to take it, you know, in the military or, you know, maybe as a, as a corporate person, as a direction I want it to go. And I create this current. And I feel like if I'm doing my work, the right value proposition and creating the right environment within this current, you know, dignity, respect, all, all those things that, that we know as know of as service members and companies have as well. If, I, if I'm doing my job with this current, I'm going to have some people jump into this current and they're going to swim as fast as they can towards the objective. And that's great. I'm going to have some people that jump into this current and they're going to be like, I'm not sure where this, this is really going. And I'm not really sure if I'm buying in yet, but I'm just going to kind of hang out here and see if this is something that I feel like is going to move me in the direction. But the current's still moving, right? The current's still moving. If I'm doing my job, the team's doing the job, and the leadership team's doing the job, the current's still moving. And then I'm going to have some folks that are going to jump into that current, and they are going to swim the opposite direction as fast as they can swim. Because they don't like change. You know, they're humans. they got their own egos, their own frustrations, their own conflict avoidance. But if I'm doing my job, and the team's doing their job, and we're creating this environment, they're going to get into this current, and they're going to swim as hard as they can against it. But what happens? What happens when you jump in to a river that's moving at the right, you know, at a good speed in the right direction? Eventually, eventually the environment's going to win and these members are going to move, are going to move in the direction that you want them to move. Now that's not, you know, I'm not, not being so naive to say that you're not going to have discipline problems or problems that you simply have to deal with or people that don't want to be in your, in your environment. But my going in position is always to try to create the environment around a person so that they ultimately will buy into where the organization's going. In my, in my, my past experiences of dealing with a person, you know, that's, that's really, really, move, you know, moving against where the organization's trying to go. If I try to change them for change's sake, it has almost never worked in the, in the way I wanted it to work. What I try to do is I try to triple down on their perspective about, you know, again, what's going on with their frame of reference. 
because they left their house that day wanting to be a part of something that was successful and they felt valued in and they find themselves not feeling that way. So trying to really figure that out and then creating the environment around them that they can move in the direction that, that we wanted them to go. Um, that, that's been my experience with it. It's, it's creating, it's creating the space for them, you know, to, to be the successful person that they want to be trying to, trying to carve out or, you know, in military terms, trying to, you know, work out this problem with them in a very tactical way. I've never had a lot of success with that, even with, even with relatively senior folks. Um, whether one other little tangent, you know, I'll just take two minutes here, Dean. I'm sorry. One other little tangent on the the discipline thing and how to deal with the problems and you know personnel. I I would challenge everybody you know in leadership to think about these things. You know, a discipline problem or a, a conflict problem, trying to take it from the transactional to the transformational. All right. And I'll give you just a really quick story. And I'll tell on myself. We were deployed as a task force commander. We, we ran missions off this airfield and, you know, we had a night alert mission that we had to attend to, or we, it rotated around as I'm sure Katie and Nick understand. And we would assign these to different, you know, groups of, you know, of units and they would have to respond to an alert in pretty rapid fashion, get aircraft ready to go. And, you know, we had really tight rules. You know, if you missed the alert, you know, you didn't show up on time the first time you got counseled, you know, first line leader, second time you got counseled at lower command level, third time you got a reprimand. From the task, from you know, task force commander. That's not a good thing. And these were, these were the rules. Several months into the deployment, I had a sergeant that uh, came across my desk for you know to be reprimanded for missing alert. And this was someone that I'd flown with as a crew chief and understood, you know, good you know good soldier, good sergeant. Um, but it's you know the paperwork's on my desk to, to reprimand the sergeant. And of course, the mission's moving a thousand miles an hour and. Busy with other things, so I, you know, I do what every transactional, you know, leader does. Okay, three rules: reprimand, boom, move it out of the way. A couple of days later, the sergeant's leadership comes into my office. It was first sergeant, very and first sergeant of the army's you know, very senior NCO. And you know, he said, "Sir, you know, I have a minute to explain to you what this the sergeant's going through. That you reprimanded." Like, what are you talking about? It was the reprimand he gave sergeant, you know, X. I said, all right, top, we call first sergeant's top. And I said, all right, top, what's going on? He said, the sergeant's been taking his time when he's supposed to be down off mission, trying to deal with a real problem back home because his wife and his, and his kid had left and moved across the country. And he was struggling with trying to figure out what was going on back home. So he wasn't taking any time to sleep. And he was he was essentially, you know, crashing at the wrong time and missing this alert. And I'm telling you, you know, from a leader who prides himself on being this relational guy, it hit me in the head like a sledgehammer. That I'm I am falling into this trap of this transactional discipline trap. And not even knowing what's going on with someone that I had flown in a helicopter. What's going on back home? What's going on with their lives? And we changed all sorts of stuff after that. And we, the transformational piece, the transactional transformational was 
you know, mobilizing, you know, our chaplaincy and our ministry team, you know, come up, coming up with a sensing session and a, a series of sessions with leadership at Echelon to have, have these really honest conversations about the struggles back home and our family support groups and how they're being connected and is the communication flowing the right way. And it's okay to bring these issues forward to the command and we'll understand about the mission. It changed all sorts of behaviors within the organization about how we viewed how our soldiers were dealing with the environment of the deployment, much less, much less this alert mission. So this, this, this idea about, you know, you, you try to create this environment and you're going to have, you know, you're going to have pushback. You're going to have some, you know, these problems that come up, but looking towards that, you know, humanistic transformational way. I just believe after 31 years of the military, I believe that's the right approach, whether you're leading them, you know, a unit in the army or whether you're leading the company outside. I can't really think of a better way to end than that. Uh, I, I appreciate those, those last words that really do bring home what I tried to suggest this podcast would be about that. There are things hopefully you've heard today that you can try tomorrow that you can actually take some of these concepts and apply them in your own leadership context, whatever that might look like and wherever that might be. I, I feel like it's pretty fair to say a lot of people would assume the kind of human-centered experience you described here, Dan, is not something that the military is known for. But obviously, you were able to accomplish it in that context, and I think that is absolutely tremendous. Katie, Nick, I want to thank you for being here, for the questions that you asked the general uh, for your service. Can't thank you enough. Dan Dent, same thing. We thank you for your service, but also for the way that you approached your command and how you helped soldiers get on with being soldiers as well as being humans. Uh, that is refreshing and remarkable to me. So to you all, thank you. Thank you for the time. I will say to our audience, good luck and good leading. <laughs>